The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by violinist Baiba Skrite. Welcome, Baiba. Thank you for having me here. This is almost a second home for you. You come to Utah quite a bit. Oh, yes. It's wonderful to come here and yeah. to get to know the orchestra over many times, and I'm always enjoying my visits here. Well, they love working with you, and I know that you're a favorite of Maestro Fisher's, so welcome back. I have been watching some interviews with you, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about your fiddle. Everybody wants to talk about <laughs> violinists and their instruments. So the reason I bring it up is because I don't think listeners really understand how the high-end violin game sort of works. Most of you soloists at your level probably don't own the instrument you play on, right? Isn't that isn't it pretty common to have it on loan from somebody? How did you come by yours? Well, nowadays, unfortunately, it is very common that uh, most of violinists cannot afford these instruments anymore. Right. There are pieces of art, of course, understandably, and history, history, of course, and and it's very difficult. Um, But um, yes, there's a lot of foundations and and some private um, persons who are loaning out instruments. My one comes through the Beers International Violin Society. Mm -hmm. It belongs to the family of... uh, great teacher who, who used to be great teacher uh, Ifra Niemann. Oh, British. Yes, he yeah, was in well, London, yeah, right, and right. his family um, are loaning me the instrument through the Beers Foundation, and um, it's a big struggle, actually, for us um, also not to be, not, not to know which instrument we can play, let's say, in four right. or five years. You never right. know. There are always different contracts with, with different foundations and people, and um, it's always a struggle, but luckily there are s- there's still many instruments around, and, yeah. and if you're lucky and somebody helps you, it's possible. How long have you had this one? This one I had since two and a half years for now. So it's starting to feel like yours, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Actually, with with each instrument, it becomes a little bit easier. I mean, the first Stradivarius I played, which was, um, I started in 2001, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that really took me two years to kind of get to know anything, how it works. And, yeah. and since then, it's been, it takes a little less time because you understand also how to not push yourself onto the instrument sure. in a way. If you accept that the instrument has its own character, life, uh, requirements towards the artist, mm-hmm. and you find a good connection to the instrument, then it, then it works fine. We should mention that this is a Strad you're playing on now. And I, one of the things I've always found interesting about Stradivarius instruments is that everybody thinks a Strad is a Strad, but they are very different from each other, aren't they? Oh, yes. There's huge differences. Yeah. There are some which are more brilliant, some which are more uh, more deep in sound. And plus, of course, you can also uh, do the setup in a different way, yeah. as you like. But um, still, each instrument has its own life. And, and that's why they always speak about fitting to a person or right, not. But right. I also think you shouldn't be too capricious in this way. And also do, do accept that the instrument kind of gives you a little bit the way. There's, and there's kind of like, there's like a 40-year range in terms of strads. I mean, they can be from the late 1600s or up until the 1730s, right? I mean, oh, yes. it's kind and of a huge range. Yes, and he, he changed his way of building violins right. so during that time. And of course, his age, uh, he aged as well. And he at some point, he was quite old. And my instrument actually is, the top is from 1734, uh-huh, which uh-huh. when he was, I think, 90 years right, old. Right. So uh, he put it on a, apparently he put it on a, another bottom he made earlier on and just put them both together oh that's interesting (laughs) yeah so uh, there's many 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 different kinds of instruments yeah well i hope they let you keep it forever because you you sound really really great on it i want to talk a little bit about your career and i know that recording and commissioning are a big part of 
a profile for an artist of your stature. And I know you've recorded quite a bit. That's really clear. You've got a lot of records and some really wonderful ones. In fact, you've recorded the Sibelius Concerto, which you're playing with us this weekend. But I wonder about commissioning. I, you and I have never talked about that. And Do you have some really great commissioning stories or any great amazing composer collaborations that are coming up for you? Oh, yes. I'm really excited about those, actually. Uh, it's coming up really soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, I think, April or May mm-hmm. is it's the world premiere of of a um, wonderful American composer, Sebastian Carrier. Ah. Uh, he's writing a violin concerto, and it's a commission by uh, Boston Symphony and wonderful. Leipzig Gewandhaus. So we actually get to play it in Boston and in Leipzig and even take it on tour to Asia. So this is this is something unusual for a, uh, a new concerto, that right. to be able to play it more than once and with different artists. And I'm so glad that I get the chance to present it in different places. And take it on tour. That's yes, wonderful. Because you're so right. It's uh, we've I've talked about this on the show before, that commissioning, it's hard to be a composer these days because the only thing that's guaranteed is the first performance. Anything after that can be very difficult. Yes, and everybody wants their piece. Ex- and uh, there's course. hardly anybody who takes on, let's say, a piece which was written 10 years ago right. uh, for somebody else. They all say, oh, but I want a piece written for me. So it's, right. it is very difficult. And and there's another com- commission I'm... I'm eagerly awaiting that's going to be more in the European side for for the beginning it's uh, from Victoria Borisova Olas mm-hmm. a wonderful Swedish from Russian descent I think mm-hmm. composer she's writing a violin concerto which will be premiered in September in, in Stockholm and those two are uh, really exciting uh, plans for me. That's wonderful. I ho- well, I hope you can bring the latter piece to the U.S. at some point. Oh, yes, I hope so very much. Make We're working sh- on it. Make sure to talk to Maestro Fisher about it. But <laughs> sure. speaking of concertos, and I did mention the Sibelius Concerto, which is what you're, as we record now, playing this weekend with Utah Symphony. And um, I'm just, I'm wondering, are you doing it a lot this season? Is it a, is it one of your big pieces this year? You probably end up doing it every year, don't you? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, well, yes. I mean, I'm not really sure how it's... Um, how it all fits together at the end. Somehow I'm playing almost every week something else. Sure, but Sibelius sure. is definitely uh, one of the pieces which, uh, which I regularly perform and, and always enjoy. It's, it's wonderful. I talk to other violinists about this because it's something I'm curious about. Do you plan your season offerings ahead of time and then let orchestras know this is what I'm doing this year based on whatever your recording priorities are or whatever? Or do you sort of wait to hear what people are interested in and build your season around that? How do you sort of map out your repertoire each year? It's a balance in a way, um, kind of taking in account all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Of course, I do try to have a little bit of a direction each year or mm-hmm. each season. Also, let's say four or five concertos, which I kind of offer to the to the orchestras but very often they come back and they say but we, we just did it we can you do this one and, I, and then I can't say no and I say yes yeah, of course. <laughs> and I end up doing all kinds of things but which <laughs> I love the challenge I love to be able to go from one piece to another for me it's uh, enriching to play like let's say last week I played Gubay Dulina and then right. it helps me actually to go back to Sibelius in a different way so right. it's it's very interesting to me. I suspect that if you've got a couple of or even one 
big, difficult commission in a season, you have to be careful about what you plan around it. You can't yeah. have new concertos to also learn what at the time you're trying to prepare because that process is so collaborative and you're probably working with the composer to refine everything. Of course, and yeah. then, then we try to plan enough time beforehand. I have time to practice right. and, and plan these periods of time where I have a couple of weeks yeah. free so I can actually look at the piece. And yeah. It's all tried to plan out uh, that, that I can do the best for the music. Of course. You mentioned Goodbye to Lena. That was a triple concerto, right? Last week it was actually the violin concerto, but oh, yes, okay. we've done a lot but of the triple concerto. Well, yes. and, and didn't you do that with your sister? Uh, no, oh, okay. uh, because it's for cello and bayan, and none of my sister's playing. No piano, exactly. <laughs> I, I need to do my research a little better, but I, the reason I bring that up is because I know you play with your sister yes. quite a bit, and yeah. I imagine that's really fun. You just you've, you've recorded with her, yeah. and you've done a lot with her. And tell us what the interesting aspects of making chamber music with a family member is. I mean, do you have a secret sibling language, or is there, well, are there other ways you can cheat? I, if there is a secret language, it's so secret that not even we understand <laughs> it. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, seriously speaking, of course there is a connection with right. her that uh, you can never get, I, I can imagine you can never get with somebody who has not been on stage with you mm -hmm. since three years old. I mean, sure. we've grown up through the stage together and, yeah. and there's a certain feeling of, of security that I, I can't imagine having with anybody else, right. but uh, it's always fun with her. And of course, we also have our discussions and uh, different opinions, and which is good. I mean, you have to have other other ideas as well. Of you, course, you shouldn't get boring either. But but I can rely on her for like a million percent on stage when yeah. I'm playing. You know, yeah. we we kind of have fun with each other when we play. We try to like um, make jokes on each other sure. and, and see if the other one gets it and, and sure. follow straight away. So it's actually quite quite fun. Well, I've watched some some videos of the two of you playing and it really is amazing to see you work together there clearly is this connection that you're talking about and it makes me think about trying to make music with my siblings and i know that we would fight <laughs> we would really fight well, uh, fights it's are part of it part of it it's yeah. part of it absolutely you mentioned earlier how busy you are and how you sometimes it feels like you're playing a different concerto every week and the part that's implicit in what you said is that you're traveling every week you're on the road a lot and the life of a soloist is a lot of planes, a lot of hotels, a lot of time spent all around the world. So, you know, I'd just love to know what your guilty pleasures are when you're traveling. <laughs> How do you keep yourself sane when you're on the road and away from family? What do you what do you do to keep your brain online? Well, I'm so used to traveling by now that I actually yeah. go insane if I'm at home for too long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love being on the road. I love yeah. being... Uh, and you kind of get your own routines, you know. Yeah. I, on a long flight, of course, I enjoy my glass of champagne when Absolutely. I when I leave, and yeah. <laughs> that's you know you have these little tricks and not tricks, but little um, things you do. And dealing with jet lag, the same thing, you know. You get used to just yeah. pushing yourself, stay up until late, and and try to accept the time. And a lot of it is just loving to be on the road and right. loving to see things and being interested in, in going around. And Do you let yourself visiting. be a tourist when you're in these other cities? Do you go look at things and walk into the cathedral and go to the museums or is it really not enough time? Sometimes yeah. I do. Sometimes I just... Um, a lot of times I actually use the time when I'm away from home to practice so I wouldn't have to do that with the kids at home. Of course. So I of use course. the time to work and, uh, if, of course, if there's a nice city around yeah. um, and interesting things to see, I will go and see something. But a lot of times it's work. Do you have any new cities this season, that places you've never been before? Uh, oh, yes. I'm actually, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going for the first time on a cruise around 
to play, uh -huh. but around the southern cup of South America. Oh, so wow. uh, this is something I'm really looking forward to. That's great. And um, I've never been to so far south <laughs> than yeah, you were. Yeah, of course. And, and so it, it, music actually does take me also to... to funny and interesting and exciting places. You do get to see the world. Is this a chamber music trip that you're taking? Yes. Yeah. I'll be with my sister and, and Wonderful. my quartet members. And Wonderful. Yeah, it will be great. That's great. Well, it's been great to talk to you today. And I do have one more question for you. It's, it's sort of a tradition on the show, and I've prepared you for this. But you know, because of our name, we always ask people who spend a lot of time in theaters if they've ever seen a ghost. So, Baiba, have you ever seen a ghost? Give us some details. Well, um... I grew up in a family. My grandmother was very esoteric, actually. Mm -hmm. And so she actually believed in all these ghosts. Mm -hmm. And I grew up thinking that there are some, but she told me not to be scared of them. Right. That's a good advice. <laughs> and, but uh, also in our, our summer house where we were spending our childhood, there was no like electricity or stuff uh, like that. So yeah. it, sometimes at nights, we actually, me and my sisters, we, we actually thought we were seeing ghosts yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Do, how, do you, how do you feel about it now as an adult? Are you a believer or are you a skeptic? Well, I don't believe actually ghosts exist, but yeah. when it's dark and something's weird around, then I do get scared. <laughs> if I, I feel like that's the truth of everybody who sits in the seat that you're sitting in. The skepticism goes away if it's dark enough. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true. Virus Greedy, thank you so much for being a guest on the Ghost Light Podcast. Looking thank forward for to the performances me. this weekend. Thank you very much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.